trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Ah, it's a fine day for wrong think. That means a great chance to catch up with my friend Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Eric, how are you today? I'm really good. You know, uh, first Star Trek resistance is not futile. (laughs) Got some really good news on the pushback front. Let's start with some positive news. I think we could all use it after uh, the the president's Valley Forge speech last week. Tell me something positive about pushback. Well, okay, there are two two recent cases in point that should give people who are listening some heart. In St. Louis, there was an attempt made by the Gesundheitsführer with an un- unpronounceable name to reinstitute, reinstitute a mask mandate for health care facilities, hospitals, and so on. The pushback was so severe uh, and sudden that within 24 hours, the mask mandate policy was withdrawn. That's case number one. Case number two is uh, in Pennsylvania. There is a place uh, in Philly called Welcome Park where there's a statue of William Penn, who, of course, is the man for whom Pennsylvania is named. And the National Park Service was going to remove the statue, and they characterized this as a rehabilitation of the park. That was the term that they used. Very Soviet, very Khmer Rouge kind of a term. Anyway, within within about two days of that announcement, the pushback was so vociferous that the, the, the Park Service had to reconsider and they're not going to take down the statue of William Penn. So hurrah, I'm in a good mood today. I'm actually happy to hear that. Now, that may have a lot to do with the fact that I attended William Penn Elementary in Salt Lake City as a kid growing mm-hmm. up, or as my friends and I would say, yes, I served time at William Penn, but that's, <laughs> right. a, that's another story. No, it's it's good to know, though, that uh, it, in spite of that uh, that uh, facade of look how invincible, look how irresistible we are. The, I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, the Borg is, is kind of a reality and that they try to convince us that resistance is futile, but clearly it's not. Not anymore. I think they have exhausted the goodwill of most people. Um, and what I mean by that is that most people try to be accommodating. Uh, they try to appease for good or ill and often for ill uh, these loudmouth complaining types. Uh, just for the sake of peace. And I think awareness is dawning that you can't make peace with these people, that their demands will never end. So in the case of the statue of William Penn in Philly, if that had happened, probably the next thing would have been that we have to change the name of the state of Pennsylvania, because after all, we can't honor that dread slaveholder, William Penn, by having a state named after him. Goodness. Well, I you know, the, the woke tear down the statues, rename the schools, rename the streets thing. Um, that is changing history right in front of our eyes. And I don't know why more people don't see it for what it is. Well, I think they are seeing it. I think that's the point. I think people are beginning to become aware of it, that it's no longer about, well, let's have a, a more complete and a more balanced uh, view of history. So, for example, ah, sorry, my cat is on my shoulders and just clawed my neck. <laughs> <laughs> that was what that screech of death was. The hazards anyway, of working from home. Ah! Hang on. Ow, ow, ow. I've got to get this cat off me. Hang on. Go. Okay, sorry. Okay, this is sorry. sorry. That was professional, I realize. I've got to check this one um, off my bucket list. This is a first. Okay, guest attacked by cat. Okay, go ahead. Please. <laughs> so, you know, it's not enough that, for example, they could, they could mention that, yes, indeed, William Penn was a slave owner, uh, and slave ownership was unfortunately common in that time because men are perfect and, and, and or men are imperfect, and at that time, 
that that you know, that vile practice was was common. But it doesn't mean that that William Penn was a totally evil man. And here are the other side. Here's the other side of the uh, of the ledger and all of the good things that this man did. Uh, that's not what these woke left people want. You know, this business of uh, white slaveholders and so on is merely the excuse to attack America and American history and to replace it with a different history. In uh, totalitarian commun- communist regimes, they did exactly the same kind of thing. Uh, they did everything they could to destroy and efface the history of the people who lived in those countries so that they could replace it with a year zero brand new history. Of course, one confected by the communist totalitarians. Yep. I am just, uh, I'm encouraged when I hear of people finding the courage to resist. And I'm really, I'm happy to hear that the mask mandate was was laughed out of existence in, in short order. How I wish yep. we had responded that way three, four years ago. Well, me too. And again, though, I think there's a lag here. I think that the reason a lot of people didn't the last time was for a variety of reasons. One, they didn't know. I mean, who knew? Most people aren't medical people and don't have a particular knowledge of, of whether a mask works. And uh, you know, people might have thought, you know, we're doing the right thing because we, you know, we don't want people to spread this disease. We don't want people to die. And they were taken advantage of and they were exploited. And I think once you do that to people and they are aware of it and they come to realize what happened to them, they're not going to let it happen again. And that really makes me feel good. So I, I got to ask, did you catch any of uh, the president's uh, uh, address from Valley Forge last week? His, his J6 no, I, commemoration? I can't you know, I... I I know that professionally I, I probably ought to have, but uh, I was in a sour enough mood as it is, and I needed something to make me feel better, and that's why I focused on what was going on in St. Louis and Pennsylvania. I I made myself watch it just because I wanted to see, okay, how far will they go? And uh, I got to tell you, I, I didn't live in the Soviet Union, but I've talked to people who did, who grew up, you know, during the, the rule of Brezhnev and others, and I, I don't think that a, that I don't think that they would have had any trouble just translating it to, from from that situation to to the way that uh, Biden was was talking. I've I've never heard so much untruth packed into so few words. It, it was it's, it was a masterpiece of, of deception and and I think outright lie that just dares you to disagree with it. Well, that's just it. What they're trying to do, as I understand it, or at least as I interpret it, with regard to Trump and the Fourteenth Amendment. Uh, notwithstanding that the man has not been even charged, let alone convicted, with an insurrection, uh, is to uh, create a scenario in which all that's necessary is to accuse a person who they might object to, whether they're running for office or not, of being an insurrectionist, of of giving aid and comfort to uh, insurrection, uh, to punish them in one way or another. Uh, You know, in the case of Trump, it's to, to try to force him off the ballot in the name of democracy, which is a quite an ironic thing. But the real danger, as I see it, is that they could do this to anybody. They could characterize you essentially as an enemy of the people. That's that's where this is headed. And and if this isn't arrested and pushed back, back against, that's what's going to happen. And there was a uh, Department of Justice official who came out and, and was saying, okay, we've rounded up this many, you know, J6 suspects. Mm-hmm. But then he talks about how even if they didn't go into the Capitol, if you were simply on the Capitol grounds, but we can show that you were in a place where you didn't have permission to be, they're coming after them as well. Well, it follows because, after all, you've given aid and comfort to an insurrection. You know, they have, it's not for nothing that they've attempted to characterize what was a protest as an insurrection. You know, language matters. Words matter. Meanings matter. So if you get, let them get away with that, with characterizing what that was as an insurrection, i.e. some kind of violent attempt to overthrow the government, 
then the next logical inevitable thing is, well, anybody who is in any way involved with that uh, is essentially uh, in the same position as, say, a Confederate soldier was after the, uh, the federal forces defeated in the field, the Confederate armies, you know, uh, a, a kind of prisoner of war, uh, an apostate, somebody who must be rehabilitated, to use the word of the NPS service in Pennsylvania. Wow. It's uh, it's a very strange time that we're going into, and uh, I just I can't see this doing anything but intensifying as the election year progresses. No, nor I, you know, and I'm hoping that some degree of sanity prevails in the Supreme Court with regard to the um, the ballot removal issue in Colorado and Maine, and that even the uh, the liberal leftists on the court will understand that out of their own instinct of self-preservation, that this is a disastrous policy for them to pursue because it will mean the end of America. Um, and I and I, I say that in all seriousness. I don't mean to be hyperbolic, but if we get to a point where uh, you know, officials in a state can simply, on their own whim, say, well, we're not going to let that person be uh, eligible for office. You can't vote for them. They're, they're anathematized. That goes both ways, and we wind up no longer living in a country where process and rules uh, matter any longer. And it's just about power, you know, what, what the Germans called die Macht during the National Socialist regime era. And that's, that's where we're headed. Interesting. You know, it was the, one of the bait and switch techniques that, that I caught the president using was he he started out talking about Valley Forge, started about uh, George Washington. And actually, I was very surprised to hear him talk about liberty was the reason why they did what they did. But then he did this pivot and suddenly it was about democracy. And that's all it was about from mm-hmm. that point on, which uh, as I think you're well aware. Democracy is kind of a term that means whatever the ruling class currently supports. That's our democracy. Well, and it certainly meant something entirely different to Washington and the men of the founding generation. It meant something uh, alarming. They they were not Democrats. They did not believe in majority rule. They they believed in a constitutional republic that was specifically formulated to keep the mob at bay through a system of checks and balances, so that you would have some some kind of order rather than than chaos, which is what you get when a mob rules. You know, a mob is no different than a lynch mob. That's why that term is used. It's a you know a bunch of people who are uh, determined to do something, and, and you know there's no check on them. So the founders understood democracy is the step before you get to tyranny, and that's why they did all they could to prevent the United States from becoming a democracy. Well, thank goodness we have a strong public education establishment which teaches our people the truth. <laughs> well, well, never mind. I can't even keep a straight face. Yep. All right, we'll continue our conversation with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. There's a link to his website in today's show notes. You can find that at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. All right, Eric, uh, you've you've survived an attack by uh, one of nature's apex predators during the course yes. of our, our conversation. Your cat doing okay? Oh, he's fine. I don't know about my shoulder. After we get off the air, I'm going to go look and see uh, how much blood is pouring down my back. How could something so cute be so sharp, right? <laughs> well, it's part of their attraction, I guess. So you, uh, you sent me a picture earlier of uh, this new lift that you received. Yeah. We, I think we talked about this in a previous show, but you've actually written about it. Talk to me about mm-hmm. uh, about what you have added to your garage and how it has uh, how it's improved your life. Well, I finally decided to get myself a uh, a lift for the garage so that I could raise vehicles to work on them rather than 
have to use a four jack and jack stands and then, you know, crawl around under them. That gets old after a while, particularly as you get older. Oh, yeah. You're not as flexible and as mobile as you used to be. But it's not even about that. It's just literally difficult to work on vehicles when you don't have clearance to work on vehicles. Um, so, you know, I decided to dig into it and did a lot of research. And I ended up getting this, this model that I got, which is, which is um, a type of lift called a mid-rise scissor jack. And what that means is it's different from the kind of lift that most people are probably familiar with when they go into a, a car repair shop and they'll see their car up on a lift, which will typically have two or four posts, and then the vehicle gets raised up. problem with those things, there's two problems with them. If you just have a garage and don't have a lot of space or a lot of height, uh, if your ceiling isn't high enough, you can't raise a vehicle all the way up and that kind of defeats the point of having a, having that kind of a lift. And the other thing is that when you're not using it, you've got these big posts on either side of the car. And if you're like me and most people who have a garage, your garage probably isn't that huge. And now you've got these things you've got to kind of maneuver around and walk around, and that's difficult. This mid-rise scissor lift, it sits flat on the floor when you're not using it, and you drive up on top of it, and it's essentially invisible. And then when you want to raise the vehicle, you just raise it up, and it raises up the vehicle about you know, about four feet off the ground, which is ample to get underneath the car and work on it. I love it. Wow. Okay, and I know it's tacky to know how much did you pay for it, but this is this mm-hmm. something that a person who is intent on doing their own wrenching, I mean, is this the kind of thing that's within their reach? Totally. Uh, this thing uh, lists for about 2800 bucks. Wow. Uh, which, it's that's, you know, if you go back, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, uh, when these things weren't commonly available, the two the two post type and the four post type shoplift can go eight nine ten thousand dollars or more, and that's probably why I didn't get one back in the day because that was a bit too much for me. Um, but this amount of money is is manageable, and if you are somebody who you know wrenches pretty regularly and does work on vehicles, it's completely worth it. You can rationalize it. You know, it's not just the cars. You could uh, I've already thought this out. You know, the way the ramps are, I could put. Uh, a sheet of OSB or plywood on top of the ramps, and now I can lift up, uh, for example, my lawnmower to get at things, or a motorcycle. So it's useful for all kinds of things in addition to working on cars. Nice. Well, I, you and I have talked about how the importance of, of having a car you can maintain yourself may be even uh, greater than, than we have, have thought previously, just because there's such a push to try to get us out of, of those internal combustion engines. Oh, absolutely. You know, you can do fabrication work, and that may become very important uh, down the road. You know, I'm actually right now in the middle of uh, putting a new exhaust system on the truck, and, you know, previously that would have been difficult to impossible to do without being able to get underneath the thing and, you know, move uh, pipes around and get at brackets and and do things of that nature. And, you know, a time may come when you're not able to go to a, uh, a shop anymore because they've been banned for some reason or other. Uh, And now you can do that sort of thing at home. And I think we talked about this last week. You know, I consider the possibility that things do get really bad. I've got a barterable skill. I know how to wrench. I know how to work on cars. And now I've got equipment that would make that uh, more feasible. So it's a skill that I've got that potentially I could leverage into other things that I might need, like food or services that I can't do myself. So there's something I wanted to share with you. I had a conversation with a good friend last night who was uh, in town traveling on business and uh, as he was getting his rental car, he, he flew into town for work, and he said the guy at the rental counter offered him and another customer EVs, mm-hmm. and both of them turned them down. Now, he's a regular listener, so he hears our comments and, and, and your, your commentary on EVs, but yep. uh, he, he was like, there's no way. I don't know, you know, I don't know my way around. He goes, I don't want to run the risk of running low. And, and this other customer actually asked, well, where exactly do I charge this, you know, to return mm-hmm. it with a full charge? 
And the yeah, per, the person at the counter hemmed and hawed. Well, there's chargers all over Boise. You know? <laughs> that's not very yeah, comforting. You know that's a really important point people should be aware of with regard to renting uh, an EV. It's a lot like renting uh, another car. You know, when you rent a car, they typically require you to return the car with a full tank of gas, right? And if you don't, then they hit you with these super obnoxious charges, not just for the gas, but for the surcharge, right? Oh, yeah. Well, now you've got an EV. So when you're, on a, you're in a hurry, you're trying to get to the airport, you're trying to get to catch your plane, and now you're going to have time to sit at a, at a fast charger for an hour? And what if there's somebody ahead of you? You're screwed. You know, the chances of you not being able to put the charge into the vehicle are pretty high. So now you return the thing, and you're going to get hit with a massive bill because of that. And only an idiot would agree to that, unless you're absolutely certain that you are going to have the luxury of being able to recharge that vehicle in plenty of time so that you'll be able to bring it back to the rental place and then catch your flight. Yep, yep. And I'll tell you, I, it, it made me very proud, you know, as my friend was telling me about his reasons for why he did not want to, to get an EV as a rental vehicle. Mm-hmm. And and part of that is because he has, has listened to you, and I'm sure he would want me to, to let you know. Um, thanks for the warning. <laughs> so he didn't get suckered well, well, into absolutely. taking one. This, this whole thing is happily coming unglued. Um, I don't know if you've been following this, but, you know, the, the secondary market, meaning the used car market uh, for EVs is absolutely cratering. And the reason it's cratering is people who've looked into it and thought about getting a, a used EV are realizing that they'd get a used battery along with the used EV. Um, one that, per our discussion last week, might already have lost a third of its charge capacity and so uh, a third of its range. And then they think about it and think, oh, okay, yeah, I mean, I'd get the car for less than it would cost new. But now I'm looking at potentially having to spend as much or more on a replacement battery as I did for the used car. So no thanks. I think I'm going to stick with something that's got an engine instead. Here, here. Well, we've got just a couple of minutes here, but I wanted to, to touch on your article on the uh, decontented car. Mm-hmm. I've never heard that phrase before, but I loved the article and thought <laughs> it really brought back some great memories. What do you mean when yeah, you say well, decontented car? Well, it's, it's more accurately pronounced decontented. Gotcha. And, you know, content refers to equipment. So you and I can remember back in the day, go back to the 80s. A uh, good example of it is the old fox-bodied Mustangs. Uh, and you could get uh, a version of that called the 5.0 LX. And anybody who was around then will remember it. And it was basically a Mustang GT, just not a GT. It didn't have all of the GT's extras, but it did have the GT's 5-liter V8, the transmission that went with it, uh, the suspension, and the wheels and tires, just for a lot less money. You know, you could skip things like power windows and locks and the upgraded seats, because if you wanted just the performance stuff, but you didn't have the money for the GT or you just didn't want to spend the money for the GT, you could get a vehicle like that. And it was not just Ford that did this. There was the Formula Firebird, for example, which was sort of the decontented version of the Trans Am. You could get all the mechanical stuff, but without all the extra stuff that made the car cost more. And pretty much every manufacturer at one time offered vehicles like that. Now they don't. Now it's like take it or leave it. If you want a Mustang GT with the V8, you got to buy the Mustang GT with the V8, and it costs $10,000 more than the base Mustang. And so, of course, you know, fewer people can afford to have a car like that, and it's just sad. Yep, I I look forward to a renaissance of muscle cars at some point. I don't know when it's going to happen. Maybe it won't happen in my lifetime, but somebody is going to uh, is going to bring back the heyday of uh, big old gas guzzling, carbon spewing, tire roasting cars. Well, you know, there's that, but I'd also like to see a return to the other end of the spectrum. Remember when you could get a decontented economy car? Oh yeah, just a basic car. You know, something that had the basic engine, it had a manual transmission, it had a heater, and that's it. And, it, you know, it didn't have power windows, it didn't have a touchscreen, 
didn't have air conditioning. You know, you skipped those things because you wanted an economy car, i.e. you didn't want to spend a lot of money. You just wanted a basic little car that would serve to get you from A to B. I'd like to see a return to that kind of vehicle. Yep. Especially, you know, with with, uh, new drivers starting out, you know, they don't need all the bells and whistles. Frankly, I'm finding I don't need all the bells and whistles either. You know, when when you're a 19 or 20-year-old person, uh, you can you can handle living without AC and power windows and locks. Sure. It's not the big hardship that it is uh, when you're older. And more to the point, you know, it's like something you reward yourself for down the line. And when you're young, it's prudent and smart to not spend money. Eric, great as always to visit with you. Have a great week, my friend. You too, Brian. Thanks as always. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, a quick shout-out to my sponsors. I want to thank those who make it possible for me to do this program on a daily basis. They include LifesavingFood.com, TMCPNation.com, QuiltAndSew.com, as well as Ironsight Brewing Company. That's IronsightBC.com. You can check out all of them by going to my website, which is TheBrianHydeShow.com. It's Brian with a Y, Hyde with a Y. And uh, that pretty much covers it. So, you know, I sometimes I look at uh, the, the various narratives that are going on and I just think, how much more crazy could things get? The things that we are expected to believe, or we're supposed to, you know, keep a straight face and not look at each other with incredulity, like, really? That's This is what we're expected to believe? It just gets more ridiculous by the moment. And I thought maybe we could take a quick look at some uh, current events, and in particular, the, the quest for, is this going to be the year of the Black Swan event? Uh, but let's look through the eyes of James Howard Kunstler. He says, let the games begin. And I think he, he nails it right out of the chute on this one. He starts with a quote from Kit Knightley, who writes for OffGuardian.org, and says, to an authoritarian ruling elite, insane narratives serve as both a loyalty test and humiliation ritual. Think about that for just a moment. Are you chanting in unison with everybody else? Are you nodding your head even when they tell you, yes, men can get pregnant? Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. But it's also, you know, to to get you to accept that, or at least to to pretend that you accept it, is part of uh, the, you know, we have power over you, we'll ruin your life, we'll we'll stop your career in its tracks if you don't agree. Pretty crazy stuff, but this is where we are. Kunstler says the ordeal of the holidays, the void of action that attends it, is over. Now history resumes its awesome outspooling. Will it be tyranny, collapse, war, civil war, renewal? He says probably some wicked combo of all that. The players are taking the field once again. The engine of the game comes back to life with a cough and a rumble. And I love his take on uh, the president's speech last week. Did you notice that Joe Biden ceremonially ceremonially kicked off his re-election campaign with that speech at Valley Forge blaring the insurrection klaxon? Is it not astounding that half the people in our country have no idea that the joke is on them? Joe Biden, in in quotation marks, is marking time in the Oval Office until the moment he must use his unique legal prerogative to pardon himself and all the members of his family for their roles in the influence-peddling racket he fronted as Veep, and then he'll gallantly step aside. The optimum play would be to hold off on that until just before the Democratic Party convention, when a clack of superdelegates can pick somebody else in a back room filled with estrogen vapors. 
It kind of depends on whether a faction of corruption-resistant Republicans will ante up for that impeachment inquiry we keep hearing about. Kunstler says, despite the obvious BS on CN about no evidence, there's actually a garbage barge of evidence steaming up the Potomac to prove that Joe Biden sold out his country. It simply needs to be laid out with brutal decorum in the proper setting. The catch is that a House committee can report out a bill of impeachment, as we've seen before. But a trial in a Democrat-majority Senate would probably fail to bring a conviction. The additional catch is that even so, the whole country will have watched the sordid spectacle and seen enough proof of malfeasance to foul the waters for the party of chaos in the November election, no matter who heads the ticket. And it must also be obvious that the party's running out of lawfare tricks for shackling Mr. Trump. Jack Smith's J6 case is a dog's breakfast of erroneous supposition, misprision, and persecutorial misconduct soon to be wrecked by the Supreme Court. The Mar-a-Lago raid is a patent fraud. The Fulton County, Georgia RICO case is a Fannie Willis masturbation fantasy. And the two New York raps under D.A. Alvin Bragg and A.G. Letitia James will be laughed out of the appeals courts. Anyway, Mr. Trump seems to thrive on the noxious vapors thrown off by these rancid actions. If all these genius moves fail, how else can they stop the golden golem of greatness? And his promise of keen retribution for the serial hoaxes run on him and all the fiendish trap trips rather laid on the nation since 2016. Now he says they can try to kill him. Can you put it past our intel community? It's exactly that nucleus of the D.C. blob that has the most to fear from a second Trump term. Dozens of them will be charged with sedition and even treason, a hanging crime. And if they succeed in whacking Mr. Trump, that would only leave a huge opening for Bobby Kennedy, who has an even bigger axe to grind against the agency that rubbed out his father and his uncle. We held a meetup here this weekend, says James Kunstler, in my little upstate New York town to make make plans for the petition drive in April through May to get RFK Jr. on the New York ballot. And he says, I told the group that as much as I would relish seeing Donald Trump mop up the floor with the people who perverted the rule of law and just about spatchcocked our country, I believe Bobby Kennedy would be a better choice to lead us through the dark defile of history that circumstances jammed us in. He's just as determined to expunge the horrific blob corruption, but without Mr. Trump's exasperating artifice and grandiosity. If anything, RFK Jr. appears unpretentiously authentic respectful, resolute, and reverent about historic's, or history's rather tragic arc. You can imagine him persuading that deranged half of the country that the blob is not on their side either. So far, this scenario has left out several other dispiriting plays that could get our country into even deeper trouble than mere domestic pol- politics offers. The Joe Biden regime, its neocon fellow travelers, and its mysterious globalist taskmasters appear avid to start a big war most likely by going after Iran, only to suck in Russia, Turkey, and a host of miscellaneous Islamic maniacs against us, and not in a way that radiates a great outcome. And the invasion of stateless mutts across the Mexican border looks like an accessory to that play, since it includes countless thousands of potential saboteurs who can wreak havoc in our homeland while our obsolete aircraft carrier groups get blown up in the Mediterranean. Even registered Democrats might finally notice that the open border is a problem. And he says, black swans aside, because they are aside and unknowable by definition, there's the excellent prospect of a financial fiasco in the works that could wipe the smiles off the smug faces of all the remaining elite wokesters, blob handmaidens, and news media myrmidons who depend on Wall Street to pay their mortgages. The national debt is zooming at a trillion dollars every month or so now. You know that can't go on, don't you? 
He says, if all else fails in this era of mass formation mind effery, the disappearance of a whole lot of money might finally get people's attention. I'll grant you, that's some pretty blunt assessment. But the guy makes a lot of sense. Does that mean he's absolutely right? I don't know. Time will tell. But I got to say, he does make a pretty strong case for some of the things that, that are playing out before us. I mean, if anybody has a better take, I'm sure open to hearing it. Now, I'm going to shift gears here. I know we've all heard some unusual New Year's resolutions, but this is one that actually made me take a second look. This is uh, one I picked up off intellectualtakeout.org, and it's titled uh, New Year's Resolution, My New Year's Resolution, Have More Enemies. Now, I'm one who really strongly recommends don't engage in enemy-driven thinking. And I still maintain that, but I want you to hear what uh, the author here has to say. This is written by uh, David Devil, And he says, how are your New Year's resolutions going? He says, I rarely make them, but this year I have. Now, please don't mistake the title. I did not write, make more enemies. Though, to be honest, that might not be a bad one for some people. That would be a different essay, though. This is not an essay about giving people a piece of one's mind or sticking it to the or any man. It's certainly not advocating nastiness, hatred, attacks, or revenge. In fact, it's something like the opposite. I have to admit, though, he got my attention. How about you? It does fly, however, in the face of a kind of conventional wisdom that's taken hold of many opinionators who want to appear respectable, deep, and stable. This wisdom goes something like this. What is wrong with this country is that people consider others their enemies when, in fact, they are their countrymen, co-religionists, and even family members. If we would just stop with all this enemy talk, we would all get along. Now, he says, I don't doubt that this advice has some merit in some cases. It's all too easy to think of people who merely disagree with us or say unpalatable things as our enemies. And then he quotes Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who observed in a number of his addresses to the West that despite the fact that many of his assessments were not sugary, but even bitter, that he should not be misjudged as an enemy. He cited the Russian proverb, the yes man is your enemy, but your friend will argue with you. And David says it's the human condition to see those who disagree with our opinions or judgments as enemies, even when they are not. Public discourse, whether on social or any other kind of media, would be greatly aided by not confusing disagreement about the means to good ends with hatred or opposition. Yet he says when people, whether they are of the same nationality, religion, neighborhood, or even family as one, consistently charge one with such hatred, with having evil motives and different values, it seems clear to me, he says, that the answer is not simply to think of them as mistaken friends. Mistaken they may be, but friends do not accuse one of desiring evil outcomes because of evil motives. They certainly don't lodge such accusations at you publicly and attempt to convince others that you are a bad person. And they do not bandy about comments wishing their political opponents to face truth and reconciliation commissions or even gulags for supporting a political figure that they don't like. That they are close to us in some way means nothing at all. As Chesterton observed, the reason Christ commanded us to love our enemies and our neighbors is because they're often the same people. Now we're going to come back to David Devil's uh, article here. Are you intrigued? <laughs> it ain't about hating. We got enough haters out there. But at some point, you got to be willing to be truthful enough to risk having enemies. We'll come back and finish this up. Another great article ahead, including the article of the day. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing an article by David Devil. I picked this up off intellectualtakeout.org. Strongly recommend this as a great place for food for thought. It's uh, one of my favorite websites, and I do check it pretty much on a daily basis to see if there's anything that uh, that I can share with, with my listeners. And, and there always is. It's just I don't always have space to do it. Going back to David Devil's article about his New Year's resolution, have more enemies. Notice, not make more enemies, but have more enemies. He says, more serious are media and entertainment outlets that continually attack us. Many respectable figures disdain the idea that much of the mainstream press could be considered an enemy or called such by religious and conservative people. They heap scorn on the idea that entire newspapers or networks might be aligned against one and unscrupulous enough to slant or even manipulate news. Yet anyone who pays attention to the media will realize that many of the large outlets do indeed have a side that is not conservative in any sense other than propping up the current order and that it motivates them to edit, massage, or even falsify reporting in countless ways. While many think such talk is conspiratorial, this trend has been known and understood for decades. The two volumes between two millstones, Solzhenitsyn's memoirs of his time in the West, document multitude of instances such as bias, of such bias and manipulation in the press of Europe, Canada, and the United States. So David says, most serious are those who have political, corporate, or religious power who are actively pushing to destroy Western civilization or supporting organizations such as Antifa and BLM that want to do this. If you're attempting to ban Homer from the classroom, mandate the tenets of critical race theory for your employees or public figures, or make sure that nothing offends the Chinese communist government, you really are working to destroy the country. And David says, you are my enemy. Many people of residual or even Christian faith will read this and echo the conventional wisdom. How awful that you would think of people as your enemies. Christ did not think of people as his enemies. But David says there's nothing in the Bible or Christian tradition about not having enemies. Many people probably think of the Sermon on the Mount and the admonition to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This, it is said, is the way in which we can be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. But he says, follow me here. A command to love your enemies acknowledges that you have enemies. He's got a point. Other instructions from the Old Testament, such as the warning in Proverbs, not to rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, similarly assume we have enemies. What is forbidden is not having enemies, but hating them and rejoicing in their downfall. Now, see, I kind of wanted to disagree with him, but I, I can't on that point. He's right. Of course, some might object to even think that that of people as, as, to think of people as enemies. Uh, they think that that's halfway to treating them as such. David says, "Better that we simply think of enemies as friends we haven't won over yet, or poor people trapped by their false beliefs or some other positive view." So why think of others as enemies at all? Well, he says, "Well, motivation in psychology is very personal." He says, "I've come to doubt that this always think on the bright side approach, for several reasons, is valid." First, our enemies could benefit us even in their hatred. As Francois de la Rochefort, I'm saying his name wrong here, uh, observed, our enemies come closer to the truth in the judgments they pass on us than we do ourselves. It's true. They will tell us what our friends won't. Even if we identify them as clearly enemies in the wrong, this does not mean that we are in the right. 
Second, while we want to befriend and convert our enemies, we also have to be ready to oppose and even fight them while resisting the temptation to hate them and seek revenge. Denying the fact that they are our enemies makes us want to appease them, when really to exercise love means lovingly fighting them. Why call this fight loving? Because love is willing the good for someone. If my enemy believes in evil to be good, then this person is promoting what's objectively harmful to everyone, my enemy included. To love my enemy is to fight against this harm, my enemy's self-harm included. Not to fight my enemy would mean to not love myself or my enemy properly. Again, he makes a solid point here. Third, even if we want to focus our attention not on the fighting, but on the reconciling and converting them, that requires acknowledging that they are enemies. Now, curiously, St. Paul's language about God and humanity doesn't beat around the bush here. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So God may not have been our enemy, but the human race certainly made itself God's enemy. Acknowledging that it did not make, acknowledging that rather did not make God unchristian, it gave him reason to redeem us. So David Devil says truth is not our enemy. Even if we're paranoid, we sometimes have to admit that there is a they who are out to get us. And he says, I find it acknowledging I find that acknowledging my enemies does not make me hate them more. It makes me less resentful than thinking about them as traitorous friends. Having more enemies, I believe, will sharpen my mind to the reality that in this new year I will have many fights that I must fight and also many opportunities to become perfect in the way that God alone has set out, by loving my enemies. I don't know, maybe, I I read that through a couple of times before I went, (sighs) he's got a point here. Now, I still maintain, being enemy-driven in your thinking, in other words, defining yourself by who or what you are against, is not a great way to be an, an agent of influence or change. At the same time, You have to be willing to draw a line somewhere and say, okay, this is unacceptable, or this is something that uh, is a threat, you know, to my family's well-being, my personal well-being, or whatever. So I I think it's a a very thought-provoking essay. You may disagree, but I I do agree that uh, we uh, we have some pretty big challenges before us. I read something the other day. And, and this was, I'll grant you, this, this may sound a little extreme to some, but uh, it was a picture of a guy out, uh, looked like he was out for a hike with his rucksack. He was rucking, which some of you will understand. You know, that's going for a good long hike with some weight, conditioning yourself. And, and what it said in the caption was, there are people out there who hate you and want you dead. Start training like it. That's not paranoid. At this point, it's not. I think we all need to kind of step up our, you know, mental as well as physical toughness and also um, make sure our our moral compass is very finely calibrated. I think it's going to be very important in the days ahead when that line may get a little bit blurry for some. All right, one last thing I want to share with you. This is a marvelous article from Jeffrey Tucker. Jeffrey Tucker's been a particularly sound voice of reason over the past four years. And he is one of the founders of the Brownstone Institute. His take on becoming a nation of non-compliers is just excellent. And he brings back some of the memories. Do you remember the stickers on the floor? Remember when they first came up to help us distance? 
They seemed oddly uniform, he says. He, he goes, I recall when they first went up sometime in April of 2020. And he says, they, the, it kind of struck him that these stickers, you know, of how far apart to stand, which direction to walk up and down the aisles of the grocery store. He says, it was weird because they seemed permanent. And at the time he went, oh, this is a huge error because within a few weeks, the error of the whole of this idiocracy or idiocy rather is going to be known by all. But sadly, he says, my worst fears came true. It was designed to be a permanent feature of our lives. And the essential message of those edicts was you are pathogenic. You are a carrier, poisonous, dangerous, and so is everyone else. Every human being is a disease vector. So while you're, while it's fine that you're out and about, you must always create a little isolation zone around you such that you have no contact with other human beings. And he says it's so odd that no dystopian book or novel ever imagined a plot centered on such a stupid and evil concept. Not even in 1984 or The Hunger Games or The Matrix or Equilibrium or Brave New World or Anthem was it ever imagined that a government would mandate a rule that all people in public spaces must stand six feet away in all directions from any other person. And that some government would insist on this was too crazy for even the darkest imaginings of the most pessimistic prognosticator. That 200 governments in the world at roughly the same time would go there? Well, that was unimaginable. And he says, yet here we are, years after the supposed emergency, and while governments aren't enforcing it, for the most part, many are still pushing the practice as the ideal form of human engagement. Except that we're not doing it. And he talks about his experience at the train station. It's clear, nobody's enforcing it, but at the same time, no one is really obeying it. So I'm going to cut to the chase here. There's much more here, but he says, noncompliance is an essential start. The battle of the future really is between them and us, but who or what them is remains opaque, and too many of us are still confused about what the alternative is that's, uh, to what's happening around us. But keep that word, non-compliance, in mind. That crowded elevator assembling spontaneously in open defiance to the blasting signage, it's a sign that something in the human longing to be free makes our decisions, and it still survives. There are cracks in the great edifice of control. If you want to feel encouraged, start looking to see some of those cracks. Start looking around and see how many people have chosen not to live in fear because they don't absolutely have to. Do you remember when all the uh, masking mandates and all the distancing mandates and lockdown things just suddenly vanished like fog on a sunny day? It started the moment people realized none of this is making a difference and they just simply stopped obeying. Let's remember how that works. This is The Brian Hyde Show.